to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing the campaign for clemency for Kevin K.J. Johnson. Also going to be talking about how the U.S. government is ratcheting up tensions with the DPRK. And it's Friday, which means we'll be having addition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, we talked a few days ago about how the U.S. continues a cozy relationship with the United Arab Emirates, even though the regime has used legal and illegal means to influence U.S. politics in its favor. Well, in another example of how the U.S. loves to do business with authoritarian despots, the Biden administration has just submitted a statement of interest to U.S. District Court Judge John Bates, who is providing over the civil suit being brought against Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman by the fiancé of murdered journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the human rights organization Dawn that Khashoggi founded. The letter from the Biden administration states that Ben Salman, who was named prime minister of the Saudi regime less than two months ago, is immune from the civil lawsuit because of a doctrine of international law that declares that sitting heads of government have immunity from civil suits in the courts of other nations. Now, the thing is, this aspect of international law isn't actually written in any charter or convention or treaty. It is customary, a gentleman's agreement, if you will, between the rich and powerful heads of state in one country promising that their counterpart, rich and powerful heads of state in other countries, won't be subjected to civil prosecution for crimes they commit in each other's countries, even if those crimes are committed against each other's citizens. The only instance of such an agreement being documented is in the U.N. Convention on Special Missions of 1969, which mentions in Article 21 that heads of state enjoy, quote, privileges and immunities accorded by international law to heads of state on an official visit, end quote. But it doesn't go into detail about what those privileges and immunities cover. And so this article is really kind of murky and people just kind of use it however they want. This gentleman's agreement does not cover diplomats and consular officers, though, as immunities for those officers are clearly set out in the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations and the Vienna Convention on Consular Relations. Nonetheless, immunities for heads of state has been asserted by the U.S. government in many cases where they were sued in the U.S. for crimes as serious as extrajudicial killings and torture. The Washington Post quotes John B. Bellinger III, who served as legal counsel to both the State Department and the National Security Council under President George W. Bush, saying that as legal advisor at the State Department, he said that, quote, I asserted immunity on behalf of Pope Benedict, who had been sued for failing to investigate sex abuses by the clergy, end quote. I don't know why it sounds like he's bragging about that. That's nothing to brag about. The executive director of Khashoggi's organization, Democracy for the Arab World, or DAWN, 
said that the Biden administration's decision, quote, not only undermines the only effort at judicial accountability for Khashoggi's murder, it signals that our government will ensure impunity for a tyrant like MBS, no matter how heinous his crimes and embolden him further, end quote. And, you know, that's not an exaggeration. As the CIA, in a classified assessment just months after the 2018 murder of Khashoggi, concluded that Ben Salman, quote, approved an operation in Istanbul to capture or kill the Saudi journalist because he was perceived as a dissident whose activities undermined the monarchy. At that point, Ben Salman was not the head of state of Saudi Arabia, wouldn't be named prime minister until this year, and could have been prosecuted in this lawsuit that was filed in 2020. But the slow pace of justice in U.S. courts and the impacts of politics on the case brought it to this moment when the U.S. government takes the side of another criminal head of state. And don't believe for one second that the Biden administration made this decision because this informal international agreement was being held over its head. This was done to curry favor with the Saudi regime after OPEC plus the energy cartel, the Saudis co-chair, reneged on their promise to Biden earlier this year to continue to increase oil production to make up for international shortages caused largely by U.S.-led sanctions against Russian exports. Biden said at the time that there would be consequences for Riyadh, But instead of making Riyadh pay, the Biden administration is offering the Saudi regime a carrot in this statement of immunity for Ben Salman, hoping that he'll decide to increase oil production next month when sanctions against Russia are due to increase. The continued relevance of this unwritten agreement between heads of state not to prosecute each other for crimes they commit in other countries is certainly something that needs to end as it clearly reveals that the powerful are above the law. But this administration's position in declaring Mohammed bin Salman immune from civil prosecution is as much, if not more, about oil and the U.S.'s need for it as it is about some unwritten rule between rulers that honestly does need to end. And I guess I have to say something about House Speaker Nancy Pelosi announcing that she will not run for another leadership post now that Republicans have taken control of the House. After 20 years in Democratic leadership where we watched Pelosi smack down progressive challenges to weak liberal policies and ruthlessly put members of the progressive caucus in their place for daring to speak up, however weakly they may have done so, on behalf of the working class and poor, hers is also a tenure that needed to end. But I hold out no hope for a more progressive Democrat to take her place because the Democratic Party is not a party of progressive values. It is firmly captured by corporate oligarchy. And whoever replaces Pelosi will have to pledge allegiance to the corporate states of America just like she did. Whomever the new dim boss will be, it will be the same as the old boss. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. 
And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Michelle Smith, co-director of Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty. Michelle, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And thank you for joining us, Michelle. And uh, we brought you on today because we wanted to talk about the case of Kevin K.J. Johnson. Now, this is uh, a black youth who uh, has been sentenced to death for the killing of a police officer, uh, which happened when uh, Johnson was 19 years old. And uh, Johnson is someone, you know, whose life is marked by uh, abuse and instability of different kinds of. Uh, uh, not to mention uh, the fundamentally uh, uh, racist and unequal nature of uh, the court system that compounds the issue as well. And it's my understanding that Kevin's execution date has been set for November 29th, so later on this month. So to begin, Michelle, I was hoping you could help us understand just who is Kevin K.J. Johnson, the human being, and uh, uh, how does his background, you think, factor into why uh, 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 he's sort of facing uh, the death penalty in this moment? Well, Kevin uh, is a father. He is a grandfather. He is a mentor. Um, He is a very intelligent black man. He's currently 37 years old, and he is an asset to his family as well as to his inside family who, you know, inside of the prison. So he is a very beloved person in his inside and outside community. As far as um, why, you know, he is on death row or what about him uh, places him in that position, basically because he's a black man. Um, Honestly, there's no other reason that would account for the apathy, the inconsideration, um, and the complete disregard of his humanity other than the fact that he was a black youth who committed this particular crime. Yeah, and, you know, just... Focusing on the crime, I think, is what people are are doing. The fact that he killed uh, a police officer, William uh, McEntee, I believe. Um, But there were issues in Kevin's life uh, long before he encountered the police and an an, an incident that directly relates to the trauma that uh, he endured at such a young age that I'm hoping you can give us some insight into. Of course I can. Um, I liken this to a set of dominoes that failed in Kevin's life Um, from the time he was born to that particular day in July of 2005 when he was 19 years old. His life had been marked by trauma, abuse, and violence. And when people say, you know, you should have known better, I often question how is a person, a child, a youth, supposed to quote-unquote know something better when all they've experienced and all they've been, you know, given in their life is suffering, struggle, abuse, and trauma. So there's no real way to, quote-unquote, know better. Um, And in that particular moment, yes, he suffered all of his life, but in that moment, he had what um, was considered the most tragic um, and trauma-filled experience that he had, you know, suffered thus far in the loss of his brother. 
And when I say this was his brother, he was a 12-year-old child, he was a little more than uh, Kevin's brother. He was honestly almost like Kevin's child. He was born um, when their mother was in a, in the uh, throes of a serious uh, crack addiction. And so the baby had a lot of health issues. So Kevin really took to his little brother almost like he had to protect him from the world. He had to protect him from their mom's, you know, drug addiction. And Kevin saw his little brother as his way to make sure that he did not experience the abuse and trauma that Kevin had experienced. So basically a redemption of himself because he blamed himself for everything that had happened bad in his life. And so when his little brother came along, it was almost like this is a chance for me to do something good, to do something better. And he took on that role. Even though he was a child when his brother was born, he was only seven years older than his little brother. He definitely became almost like a father figure to um, his brother, they affectionately called the little boy Bam Bam. You know, we we in black folk, we always got nicknames in our family. So um, he loved Bam Bam so very much and wanted to protect him. And on July the 5th of 2005, Kevin felt like he failed in that. Um, Bam Bam died that particular day. And the circumstances around his death were, you know, um, just sudden and they were very traumatic for Kevin. Um Again, with Bam Bam having health issues, he suffered a seizure that particular day, which he had had, like I said, health issues all of his life. And when he suffered this particular seizure um, on July the 5th, the police were near. They had come to the community. Kevin felt like they were coming to arrest him. He had a minor um, uh, uh, infraction, and he was on probation for it. And Kevin felt like the police were there for him. But when his little brother collapsed and their grandmother you know, cried out for help, and the police came um, to the door, they didn't help. They didn't, you know, comfort the family. They didn't immediately rush the little boy to the hospital. You know, they they acted, and this is, you know, in Kevin's mind and his family's mind, they acted with a lot of apathy, with a lot of disinterest, and with a lot of the, you know, um, non-concern that we as Black folk in these poor communities have come to know the police, how they act. So they felt like the police did not act in an urgent manner. And even, and I'll say this, even if the police had good intentions, the relationship that the police department had developed with that particular community for decades set up the way that that family viewed how the police were acting in that moment. Because the relationship and the connection that they had with the police, you know, um, before Kevin was born, right, was of, of was of tension, you know, was of they felt like the police were just targeting them and harassing them. So in that moment, they also felt like the police were doing similar and not helping his little brother. And the police, you know, they, they eventually did get, get Bam Bam to the hospital uh, several minutes later, but Bam Bam had passed away. And so after that happened, Kevin really felt defeated. He felt like, you know, what is the point of life? I couldn't even save my own little brother from a fate that he honestly, you know, should not have died from in his eyes. And several hours later, Kevin saw one of the policemen who had been at the home, um, um, you know, a couple hours earlier. And when he saw this police Policeman. He just was not able to make the right choices, make those decisions that he should have. He was grieving. He was upset. And because of his lifelong trauma himself, he just didn't have the tools he needed to process that particular you know, situation properly. And he did shoot and kill the policeman. 
And when you talk to Kevin, the main thing he says is, I wish I didn't have a gun that day. I wish, you know, I was not armed I w- because if I w- didn't have a gun, of course, that wouldn't have happened. But where I'm from, it's normal for people to carry guns. Like, it's protection. You know, it's not that you necessarily, Kevin hadn't walked around shooting people at all. But, you know, when you are from a community where there's a lot of violence, where there is a lot of, um, you know, targeting of, of different people, especially young black men, people do walk around uh, armed and, and it should be no, it shouldn't be that way but it is but yes Kevin did um, shoot uh, officer McEntee that day and it was a very uh, traumatic thing in him doing that and the fact that his brother had passed away several hours before and so when we talk about Kevin's case we really need to un- put ourselves in those shoes I talk to especially black men all the time and you know talk about what happened and you know they say I don't know what I would have did in that situation I really don't know had I experienced that sort of loss in my life in that moment, you know, had with that anger and that, you know, rage and that grief have taken me over. So we really need to understand that Kevin is not, you know, some type of uh, person who just walks around, you know, violently attacking people. He was suffering in his own life and several hours before he, he suffered the ultimate loss and uh, the death of his little brother. And he acted in a way that, you know, he re- he regrets, of course, um, and in a way that took this officer from his family. And, um, and I also want to say we do, you know, in, in my work, we grieve with the family as well. I know a lot of people assume because we are supporting Kevin that we are against, you know, the, the family, the policemen or we somehow you know uh, uh celebrated his death that the furthest thing from the truth we grieve with the family of the victims we don't want anyone to be killed we don't believe that you know um the officer should have died that day and we definitely don't believe that kevin should have killed him um and we do have a lot of compassion and empathy for the family and we would just like the same for kevin he definitely needs to be held accountable for his actions we do not believe that death penalty is the way because in our community, especially when other people have committed a similar act and, you know, killing a policeman, they're not on death row. But Kevin is because he was a young black man. Yeah, and I actually wanted to get into just that aspect of things, Michelle, the fundamentally racist way that uh, uh, Kevin's legal situation has played out. And what really stood out to me was uh, the involvement of one Bob uh, McCullough, who I believe was the uh, prosecuting um, uh, uh, attorney in uh, Kevin's first trial. And McCullough has a, 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 you know, a noteworthy history, both personally and professionally, in and of himself. Uh, And he also has a history of, uh, you know, uh, the uh, racist uh, practices as a prosecutor and and things like that. I mean, this is the same guy who refused to prosecute the cop that killed Mike Brown, uh, the very thing that kicked off the movement for black lives in earnest. And McCullough's father uh, had been killed as a police officer in the 1960s. Uh, And so, you know, uh, he has sort of a a particular um, uh, hatred, if you will, for uh, cop killers. Uh, interestingly, and this is where the, the, the race question, I think, comes in as well, because uh, there was even a case where a, a white youth carried out a premeditated murder against a police officer. And McCullough said that, you know, the case didn't, you know, meet basically the standard to seek a death penalty. Yet he had no issue seeking that for uh, Kevin. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's just one example of the uh, sort of fundamentally uh, unjust way that this uh, case has been carried out. And and how else have we seen this uh, kind of unjust uh, criminal legal system playing out in the case of Kevin Johnson? 
Uh, well, thank you for that. And you're exactly right. From the moment that Kevin was charged, it, it definitely was a targeted um, prosecution against him. I will say that uh, with, with Bob McCullough, he had unleashed a reign, um, and I actually called it a lingering atrocities of Bob McCullough. He was a head prosecutor in this community for 27 years. However, he was an assistant prosecutor even before that. So for over 30 years, you know, Bob McCullough's racism, his prejudice, his bias, his rage against black men, because like you said, in 1964, a black man had uh, had killed his own father, who was a policeman at that time. So Bob McCullough had a lot of uh, animus against black youth, and he carried that out in his job, you know, every single year. And it only got the attention it, it got after the tragic death of uh, murder, excuse me, of Michael Brown Jr. And his refusal to charge uh, Darren Wilson and not just charge him. What he did was see, these are the tricks prosecution plays. There was a grand jury in, in that particular case. And he presented some some um, jury instruction to the grand jury that had been changed. But he presented it the way that it had uh, was written in the 1970s, not how it was changed later on, I believe, in the 90s. So had he presented that jury instruction the way that it was rewritten and updated, they probably would have charged Darren Wilson. But because he actually gave them the original um, uh, language of that particular instruction, they did not. So it's always about these prosecutorial games, and that's how the system plays out in the racism um, You know that that. It shows in court. It's not always necessarily blatant, but when you look behind the curtains, you see exactly what happened. So in that case, that it, that's what McCullough did, and he, you know, did similar in Kevin's case. He actually allowed the defense team for this white youth in 2016, a white youth did kill a policeman and he premeditated. He talked about it on Facebook. This, you know, in 2016, Facebook was definitely a thing. So this kid talked about he hated cops and he wanted to kill cops and he set about killing the cops. And he planned it. He um, had an ex-girlfriend that he had been fighting with. And he went to her home and caused the ruckus and banging on her door and that kind of thing. And, of course, the young lady's parents called the police, which what you would do if somebody, you know, is banging on your door that you don't want to be there. And he stood, stood there and waited for the cops to get there. And he shot as soon as they got out their car, he shot him. He killed one and wounded the other. And that was premeditated. But what McCullough did in that instance was he contacted uh, Mr. Forrester, is the, is the young man's name, Trent Forrester. He contacted his defense attorneys and he gave them one year to collect the mitigating evidence that would give him cover to not seek the death penalty. Because Trent had also had a rough life. He was he was an 18-year-old young man. He had been abused and he had you know suffered some, some issues in his home as well. But Bob McCullough gave his attorneys the benefit of the doubt to collect that evidence and present to him so that he would have cover in not seeking death penalty. Kevin's attorneys didn't get into that. Kevin's, as soon as, you know, Kevin was arrested, he was charged with capital murder. Uh, McCullough said um, his his lousy home life or childhood doesn't give him a right uh, or, or an excuse, you know, to get away with killing the cop and the death penalty is the right thing. So from, from day one, Kevin got none None of that compassion, none of that mercy, none of the benefit of the doubt that a white youth later got in his own case. And so we understand that the death penalty is, number one, arbitrary. Everybody doesn't get you know, um, um, sentenced or everybody doesn't face a death penalty. It's political. 
uh, because McCullough, of course, used that to run for re-election. You know, the next several years, prosecutors love to say, oh, you know, I I, comm- I um, uh, prosecuted someone for death penalty and they did this horrible act and they're on death row and I'm the one that's going to keep you safe. So he used that in our communities for so many years. And St. Louis is a very ra- uh, divided racist place. And so a lot of our white communities for many years supported Bob McCullough. And um, and again, he, he did this uh, with Trent Forrester, gave him a benefit of the doubt. He did not get at the cabin. And if we're going to have such a harsh punishment as a death penalty, it has to be uh, equitably, equitably applied. It has to be, you know, with, without bias. But our system is filled with that. So we can't say, you know, that we're going to have something and make sure it's not biased and it's equitable when our system doesn't have any of those things anyway. So it was ba- it was definitely a racist prosecution. Also, what did he do? He got an all-white jury, the second trial, because to convict a black man and to give him the harshest punishment, you're going to have to go get all-white people. You know, that's historically been the case. And that's what Bob McCullough did. He went and got an all-white jury the second trial. Because the first trial, there were some actual compassionate people on the tr- on the, on that uh, jury. Even if they were black or white, it was, it was a mix, but they were compassionate. The second trial, he made sure to get all-white people, and he kept out Kevin's history, you know, his abusive history, the fact that his brother had died mere hours before. McCullough said that had nothing to do with him killing that cop. And so um, we saw that Kevin's prosecution was filled with prejudice and racism. And later on, several years later, and with Trent Forrester, he he received every benefit of every doubt, his mental health, his childhood, every issue he had ever had was taken to, into account. And McCullough said that case did not meet the standard of death penalty. So I just really need people, even if you are for this harsh punishment, to understand that it's not um, equally applied, it's not equitable. And if we don't have a justice system that is equitable, what is the point of that? It's not going, you know, it's not going to help our society is going to keep tensions high. People say we're supposed to forget about racism and slavery and all these other things. How are we supposed to forget those things when every single day the people, the poor, you know, people in our communities, black, white, whatever, actually, people in our communities are harmed because these practices still are not um, equally divided. Nobody rich on death row. Nobody in this entire country, middle class, connected to power, you know, connected to elected officials, connected to money. There is no and they commit crimes. They kill people, too. There is nobody with any means or connections to means on death row anywhere in this nation and never has been. Yeah, definitely. And uh, lastly, Michelle, if people want to find out more about the case of Kevin K.J. Johnson and how they can join the fight uh, calling for a clemency, uh, where should they go? Well, they can visit our socials and our website, and thank you for mentioning that. Um, I'm going to give you the acronym real quick because it's, it's a little confusing. Um, MADPMO, M-A-D-P-M-O. So MADPMO on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Also, that's our web, website, MADPMO.org, M-A-D-P-M-O.org. So you can follow our work, get updates. We are having some events still on Monday night the 21st, we're having what we're calling a storytelling visual, and that's going to include pictures. Uh, Kevin is a prolific writer as well. He's written two books and working on a third. And so we're going to be doing some readings from his books. We really want to make sure that people understand the human being and the person that Kevin Johnson is, um, you know, because he needs people to recognize that he is not some monster. He is actually an amazing person that made a mistake, and he regrets that. So we will be having that visual. We'll also be doing some other things 
coming closer to the execution. So if anyone wants, you know, to follow our work, um, you can DM us, email us as well. Um, for the most part, I and my co-director, we answer all the DMs and emails. So please reach out. But it's uh, madpmo, M-A-D-P-M-O dot org. And that is our handle as well on socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So please connect with us and stand with us today to call for um, clemency. And and lastly, clemency is not letting anyone out of prison. The word clemency means changing their sentence to another sentence. So in his case, clemency will be getting him off of death row and giving him life in prison, which is the same sentence that Trent Forrester currently has. So we're asking for that is what clemency means in this particular case. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about Washington ratcheting up tensions on the Korean Peninsula. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Joo Park, member of Nodu Dong for Korean Community Development. Joo thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And it's great having you here, Joo Hyun. And we've been seeing some uh, what I would describe as pretty panicked uh, uh, coverage in the U.S. in Western media following some recent missile tests uh, coming from the DPRK or North Korea. And as always, uh, what is left out of a lot of this coverage is sort of the broader context of, you know, ongoing provocations and uh, war games and military exercises between uh, the U.S. and South Korea. And so I was hoping you could help us understand why uh, tensions on the Korean Peninsula seem to be escalating at this moment and uh, what's missing from uh, both the Western coverage and Western understanding of uh, what's at play here. Well, that's a great question, Sean. I think that's a great place to start. I think the really key thing for people to understand is that This current escalation is really the result of a much longer process of deteriorating relationships that we can at least trace back to to 2021, uh, when an arms race was taking place uh, on the peninsula between the two Korean states. Um, One thing that I think is crucial to note is that during this summer, there was a two-month pause in the DPRK's military activity. They were not conducting missile tests. Um, They were not engaging in their own military exercises until the decision of the U.S. and South Korean governments in August to go forward with the Uji Freedom Shield exercises. These were the largest joint military exercises to take place in five years. Uh, So since the last crisis on the Korean Peninsula and that brief window of diplomacy and reconciliation that occurred between uh, primarily South and North Korea, but also uh, with some involvement from the U.S. as well. 
And it was really that decision to move forward with those joint military exercises, which the DPRK has been very consistent in naming as a threat to its interests and to its security, uh, that has triggered this current crisis. It resulted in North Korea making the decision to pass a new landmark law to declare itself a nuclear state. This law gives it the legal conditions under which it would use a preemptive nuclear strike for the first time. Um, And this is in response to changes in South Korean military policy, uh, which more or less advocate the same thing. And it also crucially says that the DPRK will no longer engage in negotiations with foreign powers about its nuclear weapons program. So what that means is that the past 30 years of U.S.-North Korea engagement, which have been premised on this idea of denuclearization, is now over. The door to those kinds of talks has closed. And I think that's a really momentous change that the U.S. has not completely wrapped its head around because what America and the Biden administration have then proceeded to do is basically continue to have military exercise after military exercise, provocation after provocation. And they've acted surprised when the DPRK has turned around and met them tit for tat. I think what's very interesting in this uh, current crisis is that North Korea is not backing down. They are upping the ante in ways that they have not done before. And they're basically sending the message that they cannot be intimidated. And I don't think that Washington really knows what to do about that, because uh, as the saying goes, if you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. And uh, they're in a situation where the tool that they they have been using, which hasn't been working in the past, is especially not working now, but they simply have no other way of going about things. And so they're continuing with this method that is only making the problem worse. Definitely. And you actually published a piece uh, about just this issue uh, with the real news entitled Biden needs to accept that the U.S. can't intimidate North Korea. And uh, in it, you, you talk about the history of negotiations between the DPRK and the U.S. around uh, the nuclear question. And I was hoping you could break down some of that history and, and sort of help us see how it connects to what we're seeing right now. Definitely. So I think before getting into that, the one thing that needs to be understood is that there has always been a nuclear threat in Korea as long as the U.S. has been directly involved um, in the politics of Korea as it has since the end of World War II. Throughout the Korean War, there were multiple threats to use the the A-bomb. We have to remember that at that point, it was really only the U.S. and uh, shortly afterward, the Soviet Union that had those capabilities So the threat was very much unilateral, only coming from one direction. And given that North Korea suffered the immense bombing campaign and loss of life that it did during the Korean War, that threat has always hung over North Korea. So that's really the context that we need to understand the emergence of the North Korean nuclear program within, uh, which really started to happen in the 1980s. And in the beginning, it was really a civilian nuclear energy program. But this still caught the attention of Washington and really raised alarms about the possibility of North Korea developing a nuclear deterrent. There were a lot of talks in the late 80s and the early 90s uh, that went through the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, um, in order to basically institute controls over North Korea's nuclear program to have international observers, mechanisms introduced to ensure that uh, weaponization of fissile material couldn't happen. Um, And in that period, uh, the DPRK was actually uh, very compliant. They were actually willing to do things that went above and beyond what the international standards were. Um, And the culmination of this in 1994 uh, was the agreed framework, which was an agreement whereby 
North Korea and the United States were supposed to engage in a step-by-step process to normalize relations. And as part of that, North Korea would acquire new, safer, light water reactors from the United States that could not be used to develop uh, weapons-grade nuclear materials. And I think it's important to highlight that 1994 agreed framework because that was a real moment where things could have changed. The course could have shifted between North Korea and the U.S. And it didn't happen because the U.S. didn't meet its end of the bargain. It never delivered the reactors it was supposed to. It never really uh, created more opportunities uh, for normalization of relations to occur. We have to remember that the U.S. has never had official diplomatic relations with North Korea. They've never recognized them as a legitimate government. Um, And so at a certain point, that agreement was just scrapped because uh, it was clear to the North Korean side that there wasn't actually anything that was going to come out of it. The promises that were made were not going to be upheld. There have been other uh, discussions between North Korea and the U.S. uh, since then, most notably the six-party talks, uh, which again fell apart over differences, over uh, sanctions and nuclear testing and things of that nature. I think the most recent... um, episode that most people are probably familiar with is the Trump's, uh, is Trump, President Trump's summits with uh, Kim Jong-un. And one thing I want to note here is that uh, those are really the results of South Korean diplomacy. I think the U.S. gets far too much credit. The Trump administration gets far too much credit for the fact that those summits happened. It was the DPRK that sent the initial invitation for them. They were not the idea of the Trump administration. And moreover, the Trump administration completely bungled them because they stuck to the same formula that wasn't working, which was to try to demand that North Korea make all the concessions possible, that it uh, completely dismantles nuclear weapons, all of its facilities, in exchange for basically a promise of a future conversation for the U.S. taking steps to end sanctions, to normalize relations, to institute security guarantees uh, so that the DPRK could know that they would not be attacked. And that formula has not really been interrogated in the wake of the failure of that diplomacy. Instead, the very idea of diplomacy itself has been attacked. And I think that's the reason why we are where we are now. The Biden administration has been saying that they're open to diplomacy, but they haven't been willing to change the formula. They're not willing to actually take a different position. And so in my view, if you know that that position and that formula doesn't lead to a sit down, uh, you can't then say that you're in favor of diplomacy because you're actually advocating for the thing that is not going to lead to that outcome. Yeah. And aside from, you know, the the violated agreements that were violated by the United States uh, over the course of time, there is this issue that that you mentioned of the uh, security guarantees that North Korea wouldn't be attacked. What is the scale of the military exercises compared to, you know, the missile launches that we're always told about in U.S. and Western media that we're supposed to be so afraid about that uh, the DPRK carries out. In in comparison, what are the scale and the frequency of the joint military exercises that the United States and its allies, its allies, carries out uh, in the region that causes North Korea to believe that the U.S. will attack them at any moment? Great question. I think there really is a failure to recognize just how much military prowess we're talking about when we're talking about uh, the U.S.'s war games. Uh, When we talk about the Uji Freedom Shield exercises, these exercises involved anywhere between tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of soldiers. I haven't seen official um, 
statistics yet because the military can be a little bit close guarded with those. But in the past, these military exercises have swelled to include as many as 300,000 soldiers at a time, which is an incredibly mind boggling number of troops to have on the ground in any one given place. Um, speaking of the military exercises that have occurred more recently, there have been two occasions in September and October where the United States deployed its nuclear aircraft carrier, the USS Ronald Reagan, uh, to Korean waters. And the Ronald Reagan is capable of carrying, I believe, over 90 military aircraft at a time, including bombers and fighter jets um, and stealth fighters. And so this is really enough firepower to be able to deploy like a full-scale aerial campaign against North Korea, um, as far as I understand it. Um, I think the most recent exercises that also took place uh, in South Korea between the South Korean government and the U.S., uh, which were the Vigilant Storm exercises, are also another good example. This exercise involved over 240 military aircraft and saw the deployment of B-1B U.S. bombers to the peninsula for the first time since 2017 as well. Um, I also want to highlight that when the U.S. did deploy its aircraft carrier, those were for trilateral military exercises, not only with South Korea, but also with Japan, which has been quietly militarizing uh, more and more year after year and has recently stated that it's actually going to increase its military spending uh, by quite a considerable amount over the next several years. Um, so that's the combined threat that the DPRK is facing. And um, I want to also be clear that the DPRK has made some pretty formidable military displays on its own. There have been more than 60 uh, missiles of various types that have been launched this year alone, uh, more than 40 of them just in the last couple of months. There have been hundreds of uh, artillery shells that have been fired into uh, the seas on either side of Korea as part of the military displays. Uh, the DPRK has also scrambled its own military uh, planes and, you know, kind of flexed its muscles in those ways as, as well. Um, but all of this is intended to uh, really make a show of force in response to the military exercises to demonstrate, look, we have enough firepower to be able to fight you off. And we're also going to take steps that you've never seen us do before. Um, and what I say, what I mean by that is uh, particularly the decision to launch missiles while the USS Ronald Reagan was in Korean waters. The North, the DPRK government has never done that before. And I think it's a sign that they're uh, feeling increasingly bold, that they feel that, you know, they actually have uh, the strength to be able to take these kind of moves, but also that uh, because the door to diplomacy seems to be either all the way shut or, you know, pretty much totally closed, uh, they're taking steps to actually enhance their deterrence, to increase the risk um, imposed or taken on by the United States uh, when they decide to uh, take military actions. And uh, from what I understand from a strategic point of view, that's significant because it's, it limits what the Pentagon refers to as its freedom of action, uh, their ability to basically go wherever they want and do whatever they want, uh, which is kind of at the crux of how uh, the U.S. military makes its decisions. Yeah. Last thing, Jihoon, with about uh, two minutes left, I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, how you see the prospects for, you know, negotiations, even at this kind of a very tense point. I think the DPRK is far more open to negotiations than anyone in the U.S. government currently believes. I think it's really a failure on the part of the U.S. and South Korean governments to not uh, really face reality for what it is. You know, they keep pursuing this idea that they can unilaterally disarm North Korea rather than accepting the fact that the U.S. has, not the U.S., the DPRK has functionally been a nuclear state for about 20 years now. And 
that placing peace and normalization as the priority in dialogue and diplomacy will lead to much better results than this idea of unilateral disarmament. Um, I think that if there were to, if there were a if there were to be a pivot to take place, uh, if they were to emphasize actually uh, trying to find a way to get to the table uh, with the priority being how do we uh, de-escalate things, how do we uh, establish normal diplomatic channels, uh, then they would get a lot further than they are right now. I uh, say that because I think it also points to um, the really glaring failure and inability of, and really just the incompetence of the U.S. and South Korean governments to be able to pursue this route. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think there's many, there's strong indications from those governments that they're going to be willing to pursue this path in the near term. So taking all of that in mind, uh, I would say that the probability of negotiations to me appears quite low. However, I don't think that's the fault of the DPRK. I think that's entirely the fault of the U.S. and South Korean governments. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ju Hyun, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. Today, being joined by Miguel Garcia of the Anti-Conquista Collective and the host and creator of the Sports as a Weapon podcast. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean and Jackie. Good to be back. Absolutely. And it's good to have you back, Miguel. And of course, uh, we'll be seeing the World Cup uh, uh, happening soon uh, in Qatar. And we've been discussing this uh, some on the show about uh, the different labor issues and other problems that, uh, uh, that, you know, isn't particular to Qatar, but tends to happen whenever we see one of these uh, major sporting events. Now, without question, uh, Qatar has, uh, uh, you know, no small number of issues in and of itself. But I did want to touch on today. Uh, Miguel, sort of the coverage that Qatar uh, has been getting around the World Cup uh, in the West and how it's hard not to feel a sense of uh, Orientalism in how it's being portrayed. And so how have you been seeing this uh, trend sort of play out here? Yeah, so as as you said, uh, Sean, there, there already is issues with Qatar hosting the World Cup when they actually got the bid to host the World Cup, got awarded the World Cup in the early 2010s, I think it was 2010, um, it came out that they did a, you know, they did some bribe to get it. Um, over the years, we know the issues of of migrant laborers um, building the stadiums and the terrible working conditions they dealt with in Qatar. But it is interesting to see the amplified coverage from Western media here. As someone myself, you all live here in the U.S. Um, here in the belly of the beast. Um, and it's interesting just to see how it's being covered now when we've had, you know, it's been 10 years since you've known that this World Cup would be hosted in Qatar in 2022. And Qatar does have its issues. It's one of the U.S. allies from the Gulf state. Um, 
But to me, as someone who's, you know, non-white, who's Chicano, who faced racism and sees racism, who grew up with the war on terror like the U.S. has waged on since 9-11, just the anti-Muslim, uh, anti-Middle uh, Eastern way they the view point of view that the u.s and western media has like it's very obvious to me that all the coverage has been very orientalist um very racist um so it's something i like to point out even though we know nobody's excusing the issues that qatar has and how they've exploited workers and migrants from south asia and africa um but yeah it's just very obvious like now that the world cup is getting closer they're just insane. There's like coverage everywhere. World Cup. Oh, this is like all the headlines, New York Times, all the mainstream media. They're just talking about how this is like the worst World Cup ever, like the the worst host ever because of all these issues um, with the migrant workers building the stadiums. And then also um, the, the they're pointing out the issues with uh, Qatar and LGBTQ rights, um, et cetera. Um, which yeah, those things are true, but I don't. I've never seen this energy the same uh, with other World Cups or even just Olympics, other mega events. I've been watching the World Cup since I was a kid, probably since I think the first one I remember was in '94 when the U.S. hosted it. At that time, I wasn't political, didn't know any of this stuff, too young. Um, but I kind of wonder: will the same energy be applied to the U.S. and Canada? when they host the World Cup um, in four years in 2026? Yeah, that's a good question because certainly those issues uh, that so much of Western media is focusing on uh, being uh, issues in Qatar, they're definitely issues here and have been for a long time. And it's interesting, I think, that there's also a lot of uproar about the fact that there will be no alcohol, uh, alcohol sales permitted at the World Cup stadium sites in Qatar. And how do you think this plays into that kind of Orientalism, uh, if if it does at all? And why is this such a big deal? Why, why is this even a news issue? Yeah, so this has been a kind of hot topic for a while with the World Cup, because in Qatar, um, drinking alcohol is not allowed in public. Doesn't mean you can't drink alcohol at home, but, you know, it has to do with Qatar's culture, their religion. Um, most people are Muslim. Um, Muslims do not drink alcohol. Um, so it comes from that. Um, but it's interesting how, oh, you know, here comes people, are, especially fans from the West, are very angry that now, they, today was the, I think today, Friday, it was announced that they were, they're pretty much going to ban alcohol at the eight stadiums hosting the World Cup. They're still going to have alcohol at one of the fan fests they have and in certain hotels and bars for these the fans that are coming to the World Cup. So it's not completely banned. Um, but yeah, it's a perfect example of Orientalism because it's applying the Western lens and view of of cold Western culture to another country, you know, who has their own culture, their own beliefs, their own ideas. Um, and as myself, I'm a trained cultural anthropologist, have a master's in cultural anthropology. I'm not practice I'm not a practicing anthropologist, but it's something that really caught my eye right away when this news broke today. Um 
I just I don't get why it's such an outrage. Like, I like beer, but I'm not a big drinker. I'm not don't drink very much, so to me it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, and it's kind of just another another hot topic for Westerners to complain about for the game being host in Qatar. But I also find it interesting that nobody ever uh, points out that a lot of the you know the West U.S. kind of props Qatar to even host the World Cup because they're Qatar is one of the U.S. allies in the Middle East. Um, and Qatar also owns one of the biggest uh, soccer teams in the world, which is in France, PSG. The state of Qatar owns the team. Um, so it's not like the West has, you know, they had, they had some influence on the World Cup being hosted in Qatar. But it is weird how, oh, it's just a big deal because alcohol is not being served where, you know, you're at a host country and they have their own ideas, their own culture. They don't, you know, alcohol is not a thing they do too much over there. So shouldn't we respect their cultural ideas and beliefs if they don't want to host, uh, you know, if they don't want to have beer at the World Cup? And I already saw tweets from uh, Western media talking about, well, Budweiser has a lawsuit on their hands now because they were promised, because Qatar did promise that they were going to have beer at the World Cup to appease Westerners. Um, but now I see people, oh, Budweiser could sue them now. And they're like championing Budweiser <laughs> <laughs> to sue Qatar. Like Budweiser is, you know, a big capitalist company. Like, I'm not going to, I don't care if Budweiser is going to lose money. Like, I don't care if they lose money. I'd rather them lose money because they're not, you know, they're not, they're not helpful to the, to hear people here in the U S around the world. They're just another capitalist. So it's just interesting how people are even championing like, uh, Budweiser has a lawsuit on their hands and I support them doing that now that they're not going to be able to sell their alcohol and make profits. Yeah. And, you know, there's another example of this I wanted to touch on, Miguel, uh, uh, speaking about Iran uh, and this issue of Orientalism and how, you know, some Iranian athletes are, are refusing to answer questions about uh, the issue of uh, women in Iran and protests happening in Iran. Uh, just yesterday, we were breaking down, really debunking this uh, ridiculous propaganda that's been going around about uh, 15,000 protesters being sentenced to death in Iran. Uh, that was completely false. And uh, this is something that spread like wildfire across uh, uh, social media. Right. And as always, the the, the Instagram uh, infographic complex kicked into gear and people uh, in the U.S. and the West just unquestionably amplified this uh, whole narrative. And I think this is another example of this Orientalism, Miguel, because, you know, we don't see, for instance, you know, uh, U.S. athletes being grilled about what uh, uh, Washington is doing all over the earth and has been for years. Uh, I also think of, you know, the Russian and Belarusian athletes that uh, basically have been punished and kept away from international sporting events because of a war that they had absolutely nothing to do with. And so how do we see this issue uh, uh, playing out amongst uh, Iranian athletes as well? Yeah, so that's something I posted on Twitter as well about, okay, you're asking them about these issues in their country, asking these questions to the Iranian players. Um, and one of those players pushed back on that question, um, saying, you know, why are they getting questioned for this? They're just here to play. Um, 
And yeah, why don't they do that with U.S. players? The U.S. national team is at the World Cup. They didn't make it at the last World Cup, but they're back this year. Why aren't they being asked about, um, you know, the various wars the U.S. has waged over the years in the Middle East? Um, Why aren't they asking U.S. players about the continued police brutality and murder of black and brown people in the U.S.? Why aren't they asking U.S. players about, you know, the Supreme Court striking down abortion rights for women? Why aren't they asking these same questions for U.S. players, but they only, you know, do it to Iranians, for non-white people, for non-Westerners? Same thing with, you know, with other countries like in France. France bans the, um, you know, you can't wear a whole head covering in France if you're Muslim. Why aren't they asking French players on the French team about that? Um, why don't they ask uh, England players about issues in their country and how they treat migrants and Muslim people and et cetera, right? Why aren't they, why isn't there ever uh, the same energy placed towards Western um, countries and players from those countries? It's always, you know, countries from you know, the global South or the Middle East getting asked these questions about the problems in their country. Um, Why don't they keep the same energy with the U.S. players and other Western countries that are at the World Cup? It's something I just, just the obvious hypocrisy that I see from the Western press, because they're the ones asking these questions to these Iranian players, Um, especially like you said, this, this complete lie about 15,000 protesters getting killed by the government. Like, I know Breakthrough News was debunking that whole thing. And now, you know, we know it's not true. Um, but, yeah, why are they, why is it never that same energy applied to uh, the West? Yeah, and I feel like there are so many instances of this inside and outside of sports that we could point to. The fact that countries uh, like Iran have been so demonized uh, in the minds of people in the United States that you could say just about anything about them and people here would uh, uh, believe it because just of the incessant nature of the propaganda. But we thank you so much, Miguel, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DDC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, November 18th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades. That's y'all to reach out and touch us at by any means necessary here in Washington, D.C. 
You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time today by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday. And we're streaming for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Kamal Franklin, an organizer with Community Movement Builders in Atlanta and co-founder of Black Power Media. Kamal, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And we appreciate you joining us today, Kamal. And you recently uh, published an article at uh, grassrootsthinking.com entitled, what does it mean to be a radical black organizer today? And I thought it was really interesting uh, sort of how you framed it and why uh, uh, you emphasize the type of organizer in a, a particular way. And I really wanted to get into this today because, you know, just about every day and by any means necessary, we uh, emphasize the uh, importance, really the imperative uh, uh, fact uh, of how we need to organize and all these sorts of things. But I wanted to get into some of the nitty gritty of that today. And so to begin, I want to ask Kamal, why is it important to distinguish oneself as a, a radical black organizer as a supposed, you know, as opposed to some other form? Like, like what does it mean to really be a revolutionary uh, a black organizer, particularly in the political moment that we're in here in the U.S.? I think it's particularly important because I, I, I think sometimes folks organize without a long game uh, and or a real purpose to it. And I think identifying oneself as a radical organizer or a revolutionary organizer in particular, it lets you know that who your real enemy is in terms of capitalism, in terms of the state, the workings of white supremacy. And I think too many times organizing gets to be single-issued or gets to be uh, if we can only uh, change the mind of the legislature to do something, then we've won some real victories. And I think unless you are really grounded in an ideology that tells you or shows you how the role of the state is to oppress you as a people, and that any short-term victories or, or wins you may get, does not mean that you've made the state capitulate. It does not mean that you've won the final battle. Unless the means of production are, is, is changed, unless capitalism is defeated, unless white supremacy is defeated, then the work goes on. And unless we think of our work uh, in a framework that allows us to say that whatever we're doing are steps towards a final path or towards a desired path, then we get easily caught up in the trappings of of, uh, of of the propaganda system of capitalism and white supremacy, which I think has happened far too often, let's say, to a newer or new generation of organizers who uh, uh, are more interested in building brands than they are in organizing to, uh, to, to fight back against the state. And so I think that you have to define yourself. You have to define why you're doing this work. 
and stick to those definitions to really accomplish something and not be caught or trapped up into it. And I like, Kamal, how you delineated uh, what makes a, a black radical organizer. And the very first point is something that we I, I, I hate to say that we harp on it because I don't think we can say it enough that you need to belong to an organization. Why, you, you can't just be out here just randomly doing stuff all by yourself. Why is it so important to be a part of an organization that is pursuing the kind of radical, revolutionary uh, uh, organization and institution building and politics that people who claim they are organizers claim they want to pursue or to see happen, but that they're not a part of any organization that's doing any of that work? I think it's really important because I think although individual efforts can be meaningful, they can be helpful, they can push along some things, you're not really building for power if you're not part of a collective organization, if you're not making collective strategy, if you're not measuring your work through the ways in which your organization is moving things forward and is growing. You as an activist or individual who, again, maybe writing some books, and again, all good work, writing books, uh, doing things on social media, attending events, making events happen, unless you you have a long-term connection to building power, um, that you really are just sort of doing things as you please, right? You're doing work that may be important to you, but you're not necessarily giving or helping to support the building of collective power to fight back against the state. And so I think people get caught up into their individual actions and activism. Again, that may add something to the work, but they have to realize that by not being a part of an organization, you truly aren't building power, you truly aren't building a collective, and you're not using the strength of the masses who are the disenfranchised people to work towards the solution, because none of us is in individuals are going to be able to defeat uh, capital. We're not going to be able to defeat white supremacy. Uh, Those institutions, those ideas, those thoughts, those energies are organized energies. They're organized through institutions. They're organized through their own organizations. They're organized through government apparatuses. They're organized through militias. If we, as an opposing end of that, it's not organized or not organized, then we fall prey, easy prey, um, to, again, either the propaganda system that wishes to just take us in and talk about these individual oppositional feelings or, or ideas and thoughts, um, but cast them in such a way where you're just trying to make the system better, uh, or we could be done away with in those, in those, in those systems. Now, that can happen uh, whether you're a part of an organization or not, but the chances of it happening while you're in an organization decrease that much more when you have people around you and you have some protection, you have people reinforcing certain ideas to give you strength as opposed to letting you go out there and be a lone actor. Yeah, and, and I want to uh, drill down into something you mentioned a moment ago, Kamal, when you <clears throat> brought up this issue of politics as a brand. Mm. And, and this is a real issue that that we uh, uh, see today in a, a very particular way. And I and I think that, you know, social media culture really uh, uh, exacerbates and facilitates this also. And to me, it, it stems from, number one, an, an individualistic uh, uh, kind of bag in the sense that, you know, the, the politic is all about you as a person and what you say, what you wear, what you post, um, all of those are sorts of things, as opposed to being in an organization and being a part of a 
collective effort. Uh, you know what I mean? And I feel like we've seen this uh, play out. I mean, really uh, a bunch of times, even if we just uh, look at the um, uh, movement for black lives uh, kicking off in earnest. And we had these people who were not really organizers. They were not really movement people per se, but they were sort of anointed mostly by uh, the corporate media as uh, movement figures and therefore became the uh, uh, sort of de facto voice or perspective on, you know, all things Black Lives Matter related. And of course, you know, this allows for people to achieve uh, a lot of uh, clout, a lot of access to resources and uh, uh, funds. But it's ultimately pretty empty because, you know, rarely does it ever actually drive uh, uh, towards some, you know, real goal or rarely does it really uh, encourage people to get involved and get organized in the way that they should be. It's just about this person expanding their platform. And, and that's really uh, uh, the issue. I think that's the word really that, that I'm looking for. They're not rooted in communities. They're not rooted in movements or organizations. They're only rooted in their own platform. And so what they are uh, uh, chiefly concerned about is the growth and development of their individual platform. And they may use politics to do that, but it doesn't, in fact, actually uh, uh, help or benefit any uh, movement effort. It only benefits them as an individual. You know what I mean? And and I just feel like it's so easy to do given, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the way things are sort of designed, particularly on social media. But when we talk about being a revolutionary black organizer, this to me is the complete opposite of how we should be operating. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think just to add quickly is that you know, and some of those folks actually did have movement backgrounds, um, and but they got so caught up in their individualistic or individual ideas around uh, improving their brands, as you say, as falling falling prey or falling into the trap of getting on magazine covers, of getting of having literally millions of dollars thrown at you, and and they didn't start off with the organizational vehicle. They created the organization organizational vehicle. Uh, speaking specifically about Black Lives Matter, after the fame came in terms of building out the hashtag, and that was an organization that, that was built on uh, a straw, to be kind about it, um, in terms of its ideological outlook, in terms of its collective leadership, and no no one being able to sort of push back against the decisions being made around funding chapters or including chapters or having a sense of collective decision-making. And so, again, those pitfalls of that individualistic brand effort um, of, of not being connected squarely to an organization and ideology that can uh, help you when you have to maneuver through what is likely going to be an assault upon you in some way or another. It can be a, an assault that involves a, a stick or a, an assault that involves honey, right? Um, and in this way, uh, those folks, instead of being ostracized and, and potentially imprisoned, they were given all the treats that capitalism had to offer, and they could not necessarily, for the most part, resist um, those treats. 
and they're of course they're not the only ones. It's, it is, it's uh, something that's happened um, historically, and it's happening during this time period where the liberal end of the white supremacist apparatus knows how to coax you and to bring you in and to make you feel good and, and put you on a pedestal. Where at the same time, what they're really doing is reinforcing your connection and our larger connection to the Democratic Party, um, uh, bringing us back into the reform of a capitalism that cannot really be reformed at all because its stated nature is to oppress, to extract value out of people. Yeah. And another one of the points you make that I that I really would like to hear more about is when you say organizers must organize specifically that uh, a large chunk of organizers work must be uh, focused in doing work among the mas- masses of people, um, promoting the need for radical organizing as a method to change the material conditions of the people. And I feel like this is a very important aspect to the ability of of truly committed black radical and revolutionary organizers in combating that liberalism that you were just talking about it that you were just talking about Kamal so i'm wondering if you can kind of kind of expound more on why this is so important you know the the organizing the doing the work among the masses in particular and how that does combat liberalism yeah, because so many of our people, they when they organize, we get into the habit of talking to each other. You know, we get into the habit of exchanging, and some of this obviously is needed, but exchanging ideas and having debates, reading books together, um, uh, study groups, um, uh, uh, talking, and even talking to politicians or elected officials, talking to policymakers, talking to academics, all of which it's within the scheme of things that organizers may, uh, should be able to either know how to do or should practice. But with the vast majority of our efforts, leave us in those situations as opposed to being in the street, organizing on the block, going to church meetings, going to community meetings, finding out where folks are, are, are playing sports at or activities are happening or calling for activities. The less we are engaging with our everyday folks to, to either open up their eyes or push them forward in a way that gets us into, so again, some collective block and collective action, that means we're not really doing our job because that means we're only speaking to the folks who are, relatively speaking, already converted and may already be involved. Our job as organizers is to get more people involved in this work. It is to get more people involved, and so that's whether or not we're doing it at rallies, through campaigns, through marches, uh, through book clubs, through whatever. We are to get those who are not necessarily currently organizing in a space where they start to see that their material well-being has more to do with them that they themselves fighting for change than it does uh, having a good night out or watching TV and relaxing or playing uh, uh, spades with friends or whatever daily activities we all want to engage in, but that people's lives will not get better until we collectively organize together. And I think when, when people who call themselves, we call ourselves organizers, um, when we don't engage in that level of activity on a regular basis, then really what we're doing is making friends and comrades and associations 
but we're not building power. We're not building organization. So I think it's important for us to remember that the the, the organizer in particular, not that there's not other roles to play within movement building, but the organizer, if you consider yourself an organizer, if you've been trained to organize, if you think that that's where the, the work is, and certainly that's where most of it is, then you must be talking to people at their workplace, in their community. You must be trying to encourage them to join and to fight back against the capitalist onslaught that in fact impacts us all. Yeah, and I appreciate you making that point, Kamal, because there is this tendency, particularly in um, uh, the left here in the U.S., to just be very insular and to make politics this kind of purely intellectual exercise. And as you say, obviously, study is important and we should all do it. Political education is important. But, you know, uh, uh, these ideas that we're reading and studying about and that we feel so deeply, they actually just aren't worth much if we're not able to take the words and have the words be made flesh. You know what I mean? And that that's really what it is a, a sort of all about. And, and that's where sort of the class aspect of things comes in as well in terms of where we're doing this work and for who we're doing it. And uh, I also think that that uh, insular uh, uh, character of things is kind of a part of a, a, of an individualistic thinking as well, because even though it's typically more than one person doing it, it's purely an internal thing that doesn't have any reflection on what's actually happening amongst our people and amongst our class, which raises serious questions about the value of that work itself. And so I feel like it's sort of important to understand the balance of these uh, different sorts of things, because those uh, conversations that we're having just amongst ourselves as activists and organizers, those books that we're reading, we have to take that to the people. We have to take that to these communities and have that political education dialogue, not a monologue, in order to really grow and develop this thing and ultimately enrich the work that we know needs to be done. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Kamal Franklin. And Kamal, uh, there's another aspect of organizing that I wanted to get into here that I think is very important, especially in a time where I would argue that we're really in a a battle of ideas with this uh, capitalist system that has been the dominant force both in this country and in the world for centuries at this point. And what I'm speaking to is the question of ideology, the the substance of the thinking and uh, the politics and the conclusion of what it is that we are doing. And I think particularly with um, black organizers, because, you know, it, it, it could be very easy 
to see, uh, you know, a, a radical or revolutionary energy or, or organizing that's going on be sort of a, a stifled and funneled into, you know, say, for instance, like the Democratic Party. And of course, there's a whole apparatus there, you know, waiting for people if that's the path they choose. I mean, you get access to all kinds of money and, and platforms. I mean, who knows? You may mess around and, you know, uh, become a regular uh, a contributor on CNN. You might get a podcast that's paid for by this big Democrat money, man, you can have all kinds of stuff open up to you in this way. But of course, that would necessitate uh, betraying the class interest of black people and poor working and oppressed people in general. So having a clear understanding about not just what we think, but why we think what we think is an important aspect of a being an organizer as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're correct. We are in we are definitely in a time period where there has been more questioning, and I, you know, I think we've been in this time period since what I would, I would say the Great Recession, and I think it's only building upon capitalism's failures uh, to to supply people with their material needs again, uh, the inability, particularly here in the United States, to give people basic uh, income or health care, provide pensions. I think uh, the billionaire class and the establishment of, of, of folks clearly seeing where the vast majority of capital goes. And then I think the narrow choices that we've been offered in the electoral system uh, that somehow is supposed to bring us some sense of freedom but really just locks our chains even tighter. I think people are seeing this, they're recognizing us, uh, they're having discussions about this. And so I think it's extremely important, at the, at always, of course, but doing a, a point in time in history where there seems to be some daylight and some openings, internationally speaking, again, where there's cracks in, in European dominance, let's say, around the world. Cracks, they haven't, they haven't fallen completely, but there are cracks. There's other alternative economic ideas that are bubbling up or, or folks are thinking about or or even engaged in, uh, particularly at the state level internationally. So I think these things are, are, are giving us the ability to have more conversations with folks around what the alternative looks like. And again, if you're uh, you as an organizer, you have to be steeped in the ideas of talking about what those alternatives are, of yourself being able to create even some modicum of, of, of a model of what some of these alternatives look like and or the ability to gather people to fight back and win some victories that say, hey, we've been able to win this because of our actions based on our ideological belief system around how the system works and what it's going to take for us to exact uh, gains out of the system while at the same time battling it to its ultimate dismissal and or destruction. How do we do that except for study and, and coming to a, a, a place where we have a firm ideological practice, like you said, that even in the in the time periods where we think we're compromising with the system to win something, but we're not being brought off. To many of us, we compromise ourselves and we lose ourselves, even those who claim to have solid idea, ideological positioning, because that, that capitalist system offers so much and we cannot pull ourselves away. So unless we have a, an ideological grounding and we are surrounding ourselves with other folks who have that collective ideological grounding and standing, you know, it is that much harder for anybody to pull us away and that much easier for us to get accomplished to work at hand. 
So, Kamal, I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. Did you come to this great wisdom about organizing? And, I, and I'm not being facetious here. You're, you, the, the reason we have you on this show so often is because you are an organizer. You do the work. And we've seen the work that Community Movement Builders is doing in Atlanta. Were you born with all of this great organizational knowledge or did you have to work at it? Did what did you have to develop it? And if you had to develop it, how did you develop it? I mean, because I, I feel like we we talk to people so often who are always a little bit intimidated by, I think, you know, my ability to get in front of a mic and talk and Sean's ability to get in front of a mic and talk. And we keep telling people this is not like something we were born born to do. It was developed in us through this process, different processes, but it was developed in us. It's not something that was, you know, scooped, you know, poured into us by the Lord. The passion for it perhaps (laughs) was, but the ability to to actually do the work that had to be developed. So, so, so what, what has it been for you? Well, first off, I am intimidated by Sean's voice. So I, would, I do want that voice, but we'll leave that part alone for now. Um, but I do, I mean, I, uh, uh, it's been a practice. You know, I, I started off by uh, figuring out that something wasn't right in, it, in, it, uh, in terms of how society works, in terms of why I grew up in the projects, in terms of my mother's experiences around Jim Crow. Those are the things that, that, that uh, uh, gave me the ability or, or, or opened me up to starting to read and to, to think more deeply about these topics and conversations and to start learning about systems, uh, systems as they work through the government, education systems, economic economy, political economies. Those things, uh, um, no, I mean, like, you know, political economies, I'm sorry. Those are the things that got me to, to start thinking and reading about how the world uh, actually works. And through that, it became a, a trial and practice, as well as applications of theories or ideas that I'd read about or that I'd studied or that I'd seen. And so any abilities that I have and or demonstrate are based on the practice of trying, uh, of falling down, getting back up and trying again, uh, of rehearsing, of practice. You know, those are things that, that you have to learn because there are so many skills that comes with organizing. It's not that organizing is brain surgery, but it's certainly not just a passive thing that you can uh, just adopt along the way and pick up without real uh, trial and error work or real study. And so I always tell people that if you want to be a good organizer, the first thing you have to do besides reading and studying is to be out and start practicing. And obviously the idea of practice, the idea of putting thoughts into action have to be paramount Um, and being able to fail and to be able to pick yourself up and be with a crew that's not going to disown you or stop you, or you're not going to get into your personal feelings and space, but you're going to get back up and you're going to try again to figure out what you did wrong and how you can improve it. So I think there are people who are born with natural skills and abilities, but just because you have that, or just because you harness those things, it doesn't make you a good organizer. Um, And as I said in my piece, a lot of times those skills lead to people who take advantage of movement circles, people who become drifters, um, and people who basically steal from the movement using movement language. So you have to be careful about someone who has the the skill and passion of an organizer, um, but doesn't 
deeply believe in organizing and has not studied it or practiced it or shown you some of the work that they've done over the years to convince you that they're serious about it, what collective that they belong to again, what organizing work has taken place under their belt, um, what is the what is the outcome of that organizing, what models have they, they put forth for you to look at and study. I think those are the ways in which we all learn how to get better in life at different aspects, and there's nothing about that that does not apply to organizing work also. Definitely. And I also wanted to sort of talk about the, the character of leadership when we talk about uh, uh, organizing, right? And I want to actually read directly from your piece, uh, uh, Kamau, and because towards the end, you got just like a few uh, points that you lay out. And one of them is when you say, don't believe that there are no leaders. People who tell you that there are no leaders are usually vying for leadership themselves, for control over ideology, over people, or over money. There is always a leader over the money. That role people don't abdicate. A better way to think of it is that leaders also follow and followers will also lead. Time, circumstance, and expertise and experience should contribute to when and who leads. And I think that's really important to, to, to note. I mean, because not only does it sort of describe uh, the character of uh, uh, leadership, but it also raises uh, implicitly, I think, the issue of ego. And a reminder that we do and should, in fact, uh, subvert our egos when we do this kind of work, when we understand that, you know, organizing is not a it's not a stage or a perch, you know, for us to perform or to uh, aggrandize ourselves. And as such, we shouldn't think of ourselves as, you know, being the uh, bearers of all this great knowledge and all these uh, good politics. And we're going to come and bestow that upon uh, uh, some community, but uh, it's an exchange. Like I was mentioning earlier, uh, uh, a dialogue that is had. So we're le- we're following as we're leading and we're leading uh, as we're following. And that's a part of, I think, a kind of real, uh, a genuine grassroots orientation when we uh, think about uh, 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 organizing work. You know what I mean? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I, Again, I'm, I I believe that there are there are things that I've individually I've developed where I've become more comfortable at doing. Doesn't mean I'm the best person in the world to do it, but it may mean that because I've been developed a practice of doing it, that it may make sense for me to to let's say do it more often. Uh, I.e., maybe public speaking until someone else feels someone else feels as comfortable doing it or feels more comfortable doing it. Or sometimes you just have to push somebody in front and say. This is, it's your turn. All the all of the, the ability to talk about the work or the ideas shouldn't fall on one person. Um, and in another scenario, you know, there's there's folks who have so many skills that we don't think of as the skills of leaders because we so much push folks who can either speak well or articulate an idea or folks who are good writers as the only possible positions of leadership. You know, there's folks these days who are, are, are leading through science and, and or technology um, who are very important movement leaders um, as folks who have uh, logistical skills that make them very important movement leaders. And so we have to understand that they may must be given the space to lead, the tools to lead, and the understanding that fulfilling those roles are the things that make them leaders and to help make judgments and decisions around which way forward for organizational work. If we only push the idea that uh, uh, leaders are 
are are again the people who are on a public platform, then we we do a disservice to ourselves. But we also, in return, do a disservice when we don't act, when we act like there's no leaders or we have leaderless movements. Um, and like I said in the piece, as you quoted, you know that usually is an opportunity when someone is saying that for them themselves to vie for or become a leader in a particular space. I've seen it done where in movement circles, folks are preaching the, the, the ideas of autonomy or the ideas of leaderless movements. And not always, but a lot of the times, those folks are so vocal in it, they're looking for people to rally around them so they can challenge old leadership. And maybe old leadership needs to be challenged, but there needs to be an upfront understanding that what's happening is not that we're creating something where no one leads or people don't don't express ideas that need to be followed up on by someone and, and or some group taking it to, to the position of having it done, um, that we have to make sure that that stuff is happening and at the same time we're bringing other leaders along to also get work done. Yeah, and uh, shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, uh, Manny Niles says, there aren't many organizers where I am, so people see anyone who does anything as like a hero or something. Mm. That's important to note Mm. as well as an organizer, and that's in uh, understanding the landscape of where you are and the relationship of forces in terms of what organizations are doing, what work Are there any groups working on anything, depending on where you are? The answer might be no. And, uh, you know, in a situation like that, we call that an open field, which means that uh, a space is wide open for the right kind of organization doing the right kind of work to come and do uh, the social investigation to understand what it is that people actually want instead of just assuming we know what they want and uh, uh, sort of building the work uh, accordingly. And I'm actually, I've actually, uh, you know, you know, personally heard about situations like this, you know, not that long ago, I was talking to some socialist organizers who are based in West Virginia. And they were talking about how, you know, they have a lot of different uh, uh, conversations with people. And in the conversations that they would have, you know, they would encounter people that would just straight up, you know, disagree with them politically. But at the end, they would still say, hey, thanks for coming to talk to us because nobody comes and talk to us. And so it's a situation where, you know, and we're talking about West Virginia, you know, that's Joe Manchin state. So not even the local Democrats are, are really that active in that space. And in fact, and I think people should know this, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not the case that Joe Manchin enjoys like broad popularity amongst uh, uh, the working people of West Virginia. And so it's not even like that's the case. And so something as simple as understanding, you know, where you are and who's doing what and where you fit into that is a uh, really important also. But uh, Jackie Lukman, want to kick to you. Yeah. You know, I, I really like how we're having this conversation you know, breaking down what organizing is, you know, what being an organizer really means, um, because we always come to, the, you know, this other question, I think, that that ha- uh, popped up in the chat, you know, in, in relation to the issue about uh, having energy, people not having the energy to do the maybe the social part of organizing. Um, you know, even if people are they're, they're into being in an organization, they're Honestly, there is so much that needs to be done when we're confronting uh, the system that we live in. When we're talking about being radical revolutionary organizers, I think that's a lot more work 
than being someone who is organizing to maintain the status quo, right? Because what do they have to do? <laughs> they don't, it's not like they have to change anybody's mind about anything, really. They just have to keep people beholden to the to the system and what's going on right now and, and, and to keep them satisfied with that. And I don't think that's all that hard. But when we're talking about changing the way people think about their material conditions and the system in this country that we live in, the issue of having the energy to do this kind of organizing, especially the the social front-facing aspect of it, that is really important, Kamal. And and what do you have to say to people who might be, you know, who's who might see all of this work? And and, and honestly, I have to I have to admit that when folks see Sean and myself doing whatever organizing we're doing outside of here, Please understand it's not like 24-7. <laughs> it's not like we don't like leave the studio and go to an organizing meeting. Sometimes we do. But but that's not most days. We actually go to our homes and eat and, and engage with our families and do fun things. So when you see might us, even sleep. Might, every once in a while that actually happens, you know. So So it's not like. When people see us, they they always see us in a certain context. So they always think that that is what organizing is. And, oh, my God, you got to have all this crazy energy to do it. And thank God that's not true. But, you know, what are your thoughts on that, Kamal? Well, one, I tell people right away, I'm a befuddled old man at the state. So I'm not even an organizer. I was 25, 30 years ago, pre-family, pre-kids. Um, and so I, I do think that people see you in the world and they attach a certain idea about what that means in terms of what your life is like. And you're correct. Like, you know, most of my time is, uh, is no longer doing the, the, the time I, I used to spend uh, doing this kind of work. But even within that, um, I would say that, yes, organizing, as uh, you said, is very, very, very hard. It's not like it's, and not hard because it's it's again such a technical field or or area in which to dedicate your time to, but hard because of all the constraints that one we all have in our everyday lives, uh, in terms of family, friends, and making a living ourselves and supporting ourselves and keeping a, a roof over our heads. All of that stuff is something that the organizer faces also, um, and so all of that stuff combined with. Uh, the act of talking to people, like you said, who are themselves not only propagandized to believe a certain thing around how capitalism works for them, but are also propagandized slowly to sleep, as in they would rather do almost anything sometimes than to have to spend uh, time battling a system when they can be sort of taking a break from their uh, from their jobs or relaxing or, or getting into something else that that, that uh, ticks up their intellectual energy. So there's a lot that stops people from organizing, particularly in the United States with all the distractions around it, which makes it that much harder for organizers to get their work done. But we have to hold strong and firm that as organizers replenish, uh, get the rest of what we need, do the rest of the work that we think is important, that if we, again, if we have this radical ideology if we believe, really do believe that organizing uh, is is not only the way forward, but the only way to break out of the cycle of capitalist domination, then we definitely have to put the time and energy into 
fighting back against the system. We definitely have to do things which are sometimes outside of our wheelhouse. We, I'm, I'm definitely of the idea that you have to make sacrifice to organize. You're not going to have all your needs met, whether or not that's financial or intellectual, um, but you have to be able to sacrifice to organize because you have to put in that extra time to convince other people that this is worthy of their time and that through these efforts, we're going to be able to change the system or change things in their lives. Absolutely. And huge shout out to Kamau and all the organizers with families. I, I don't know how you do it, but we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Kamal Franklin is here. And Kamal, so far this hour, we've been talking about the finer points of being an organizer, being a revolutionary black organizer at this juncture in a late stage capitalism in the racist capitalist United States. And uh, I wanted to sort of discuss how some of these uh, uh, principles, if you will, um, uh, manifest with the issues facing cities like Atlanta right now. Because, you know, Atlanta is a place that has this sort of glitzy, glossy appeal um, as a city, particularly to uh, black people. But, you know, looking at the plight of poor and working people in that city and the exploitation uh, that they face, it is, I think, quite a different story. And you you posted something on Twitter recently that I think speaks to how a lot of this inequality plays out, or at least one great example. As you said that in Atlanta, the police budget is $248 million and the Affordable Housing Trust is $7 million. And you said that, you know, these are the priorities of uh, the black Mecca. And as uh, Kalanji uh, Jamachanga, also a black power media, uh, likes to remind us, well, first of all, brother, Mecca is a desert. You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> it, it, it's got this uh, uh, this image that this is the place you need to come if you want to be black and successful. But when we talk about the, the plight and the conditions of the masses of people inside Atlanta who are overwhelmingly black, it, it ain't so uh, glamorous. No, not at all. I think Atlanta is the perfect tale of two cities. Um, one where there's an economic white elite in particular uh, that has controlled Atlanta, um, you know, since its inception, let's say, for well over uh, close to well over 100 years. Um, and then that slowly, as the black population in Atlanta grew, that eventually made a deal, sometimes referred to as the Atlanta Way, where this white elite would make deals with uh, black elected officials or black politicians. Uh, black preachers, um, and then what? Uh, what ultimately became a, a sort of bourgeois black, uh, middle and upper middle class, and even rich black constituency, which always wanted to be next to that white capital. And so this has played out for for decades in Atlanta. 
where a small amount of black folks have been able to benefit um, because they've been let into the larger white circles of wealth to be their sort of sub-agents. And in exchange for getting resources, they tell the rest of us that things are going great, that the only reason we're not succeeding is because we're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, we're not working hard enough, or look, you can shine like me, um, or you could be like me one day, and that that's their job is to put that image out there and to basically control our anger and make it into something that uh, uh, that should be inter- that becomes internalized within us that says that the reason we are not materially successful per se is because of us and not a system of capitalism. And so these black uh, uh, politicians and this nouveau rich have served a purpose in Atlanta, across the country, of course, but in Atlanta in particular. And at the same time this is happening, the black population of Atlanta has gone from over 60%, 67% as a high, to now with under 50%, approximately 49.6%, um, where the, the gentrification uh, has pushed out poor and working class people, black people, brown people, white people people um, to where now Atlanta is a city where most of the housing, I think the last estimate was like 98% of the new apartments built in Atlanta over the last six or seven years have been labeled as luxury apartments. And so this city itself has turned its back on poor and working class people. Um, It has done so to build a city that is a playground for the rich um, to build a city where uh, it gets some recognition worldwide for being a quote-unquote world-class city, but where its residents, its poor working-class residents are pushed outside the limits of the city, but yet still expected to come work in restaurants and service industries, but at night they're expected to leave and go back to the suburbs um, without the services, without major transportation support. Um, And this is the new Atlanta and it's all buffered by a police force uh, that, that is extracting literally millions of dollars out of the taxpayers' pockets through the city, um, a police force which is abusive, which is uh, arrest, arrest over 90% of the arrests made are of black people in Atlanta. So this police force is a controlling force, an occupying force, a destroying force that keeps the privilege of not only the white elite, but now the nouveau black rich elite. Yeah, and it's the way that gentrification has been used to to produce those results that that the black population, particularly the black working class and poor population, has decreased by so much. I mean, and this kind of thing doesn't happen like overnight, Kamau. So, you know, we know what it what it looked like here in Washington, D.C. What what was that process like in Atlanta um, that that created this this massive? I can't even call it an exodus because that's when people want to leave. This pushing out of of black people from the so called black mecca and and since that's happened, how is this mythology of you know Atlanta being the black mecca? How is that still true when it's clear that not all black people are welcome? Sorry to interject, but I want to squeeze in a caller we have here. Uh, uh, Tamara, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, hi, Kamal, uh, Jackie, and Sean. Um, uh, your conversation about the, uh, I guess, the Stop Cop City uh, movement that's happening in Atlanta. Um, I'm not sure if you guys know this, but there was a people park that was being, I guess that's, 
Yeah, there's a people's park called the We La Uni People's Park. And it's, I'm, I'm not sure who's starting the initiative, um, but they're currently in a struggle with the local police about, um, I guess, what the land can be used for. And people have been taking down the concrete walls that have been put around this park and I actually had a young student of mine who who wrote about this, and I was so impressed by their how do you say by their by their initiative. They did a whole magazine or a small little zine on the matter, and I just wanted to read something from it so we can hear the voice of what people who are coming up in the movement or who one day will be part of the movement. If you wouldn't um, indulge me. And this is an excerpt, and it says, The destruction of the tree canopy and the gentrification of neighborhoods are stages in the same process. The former paves the way for the latter, forcibly displacing indigenous people, carving up the natural world into private property, burying the fertile earth under concrete, and terrorizing the inhabitants with police violence are all expressions of the same logic. Catastrophic climate change is a large-scale consequence of a series of smaller steps that are no less catastrophic in the lives of individual human beings. And I was really amazed by how this fight over what to do with the land, the police, and working people also is part of this larger environmental or, or ecological social crisis as well. So, that's, what, so that's, what's what, that's what's on my mind today. Thank you for this time. Well, thank you, Tamir. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Kamal, a good bit there between the call and uh, uh, Jackie's question, so feel free to respond to it as you will. Sure. I, I can start with the caller. Uh, so Walani Park is the, is, is the area in Atlanta, and she's right. There's a large movement. I, I didn't touch on the uh, Stopping Cop City movement. I talked a little bit more about the, the ways in which police work. But uh, as folks may know or should know, that Atlanta is in, the, is in the middle of attempting to build the largest police training ground in the country. Um, and they're doing that at the behest, again, of the white economic elite, the police department, the, uh, the, the police uh, foundation itself, and what black elected officials think is necessary to control the larger black population and the larger poor working class population. And so there is an active struggle going on to stop Cop City from being built, which is it, Actually, has taken on many different partners and 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 collaborators and comrades and folks who are doing everything from working in the forest itself to doing the things as the caller talked about, removing barriers, stopping uh, motorized vehicles from destroying the forest, uh, doing direct action, protesting, and we're all playing our different roles to try to make sure that this development never happens. Um, and we're trying, as she said, because this is a, this this particular issue is one that causes many areas of not only police brutality, misconduct, uh, police control over community, but also the environmental aspects of a city like Atlanta, which is basically a city surrounded by forests, but the city itself is slowly chipping away at that forest um, in order to do things like build a large police institution that no one has asked to be built. Um, and so that's really important to highlight. I'm glad the caller did. The other thing that I'll mention in terms of what Jackie's question is, is that you know the, the level of gentrification 
really started uh, um, after the first or second term of Maynard Jackson, and every black mayor and every majority black city council has participated in it ever since. Everything from going out to getting the Olympics here in Atlanta uh, to telling uh, homeless folks or forcing homeless folks to move out of Atlanta by giving them one-way bus tickets out of Atlanta to arresting and jailing folks where uh, the Olympics was here to tearing down public housing to make room for Olympic housing and mixed uh, income housing as a replacement and vouchers. Um, so this plan and idea around displacing working class people and poor people um, and bringing in a new wider, uh, a new richer class of people into Atlanta proper is something that has been going on for 30 years. And we've now reached the climax of it, where, again, the city that, that, that builds itself as, uh, as a black mecca is now less than 50% black, um, and that black folks are being pushed out and being done so again by so-called black leadership, which gets elected over and over again by holding up their black credentials, um, while at the same time doing everything possible to undermine a larger working uh, working class black population in Atlanta. Yeah, and you know, Jackie, the, the, the point that Kamau makes about the nouveau riche in Atlanta is so so true. And and it's not something that I think is really pointed out, but I, I honestly feel like the image that people have in their heads of Atlanta is based on that nouveau reach, this like loving hip hop idea of how the city of Atlanta functions. You know what I mean? That that isn't really based on reality, but it's based on people who just got a little bit of money and want you to know they got it. And so that 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 that's how they act. And so the way that they sort of factor into that uh, deep uh, uh, petty bourgeoisie, uh, particularly the black petty bourgeoisie inside Atlanta, I think is a uh, uh, noteworthy as well. And, you know, it it it's hard to think of a more glaring example of uh, uh, the, the, the the priorities of capitalism, that this that this cop city, this, you know, massive like land grab, like compound thing for the cops that they want to put uh, in uh, Atlanta, uh, as opposed to actually trying to take care of the needs of uh, poor and working people in Atlanta, of which there is no small number. It, it just, I think, shows sort of the, the, the sort of basic contradiction when we sort of talk about a lot of these issues. And see, this is why I think it's necessary, Jackie, for us to have conversations like these about organizing what it means what it doesn't mean, how we should conceive of ourselves in that work, how, sh- how we should conceive of our organizations of communities in that work, because that kind of clarity is going to be very necessary if we're ever going to see any kind of success. And another thing that I think people should uh, recognize is that <laughs> everything isn't going to be a success uh, when you organize. You know, you're, you're going to fail sometimes, right? You're, you are going to be in a situation where you set out some kind of campaign or project or something. And for whatever reason, it simply does not work. Now, that can be very demoralizing, but there are lessons even in that. Even if what you tried to do wasn't a quote unquote victory, an important aspect of organizing also is taking a realistic and honest stock of what you've done, 
what you are doing, uh, keeping what does work and throwing away what doesn't. And so that kind of trial and error and that kind of honesty about where things are is so, so important. And, you know, the, the thing about organizing is that I would argue that it really takes people developing to a higher level as human beings for it to really carry through. We have to be better people for the movement. It requires that of us. And I think we should be clear about that as we continue this great work. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank Kamal Franklin so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.